The revenue, mission, and experience opportunities in government contracting attracts businesses of all kinds, technical, health, construction, and research services to the many product offerings only scratch the surface of the scope of businesses in the space. Considering the complexity of doing business with the U.S. government and the myriad of different services and products the government purchases, one thing remains the same, how to stand the test of time. Welcome to Unveil GovCon Stories, where we explore the experiences and share the stories of small businesses and government contracting to spotlight the often sugar-coated or avoided discussions that speak to the reality of doing business within the U.S. public sector as a small business. On this episode, we are joined by Mr. Ronnie McGee, owner and principal for the R. McGee and Associates. Mr. McGee has over 30 years of professional practice in architecture, specializing in new construction, existing building rehabilitation, and restoration. He has designed and completed work on the Washington Harbor, as well as numerous landmark and U.S. Park Service National Register listed properties, such as the John Adams and Thomas Jefferson buildings of the U.S. Library of Congress, and was the architect for the National Register listed and award-winning historic African-American White Law Hotel and Apartments and Mary Church Terrell House of Restoration for Howard University. Mr. McGee has concentrated his work on the design of sustainable new and existing libraries, residences, and schools that reflect good construction and urban design practices and foster neighborhood development. Fun facts. Ronnie is an avid cyclist. Um, we'll get, in, get him to tell us how many miles he averages a year. And he also is a professor at UDC and Howard for a significant number of years that we'll also get him to tell us about. Ronnie, thank you so much for being brave, pulling back the curtain, and sharing your GovCon story with us. Thank you. Um, uh, again, name is Ronnie McGee. Appreciate that, Tasha. Um, I'm not a teacher at UDC. I've done a lot of work with UDC students, but uh, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher at Howard for 20, 22 years, actually. Just just retired about a year ago. Uh, probably uh, definitely one of my labors of love. And um, yeah, I probably average six to 7,000 miles a year uh, uh, in doing outdoor uh, biking. And uh, that allows me to eat my favorite comfort food, as you have, have the question here, is bre fresh bread. So you can't eat fresh bread unless you ride, you ride a few miles. So that's that is that's so my, true. Uh, that is so true. I think you, my, get, you get kudos because you're a man, too. So you kind of you can get away with that. I think if I rode a bicycle, even for 60,000 miles, I'd still probably pack on the, pack the hips. <laughs> I see. I see. But in my classes at Howard, I always use Tootsie Rolls as one of my one of my. Uh, um, references to the kids, so they will probably say that my favorite food is Tootsie Rolls, but that's not true. It's fresh bread. So, anyway. <laughs> so, Ronnie, go ahead and share your GovCon story with us. Well, my firm is a um, architecture, interior design, and urban design. I started probably, I worked many years uh, in different firms uh, doing different things. I actually had about a six year stint working at Boeing Air Force Base as um, various levels up to chief of engineering. I was the only architect that would be chief of engineering of an Air Force base. And um, so but when I left there, I restarted. I had a partnership for a number of years, and I went and worked for Bowling Air Force Base for a few years. And then I restarted my firm. And I was working by myself, not architecture. I started out some one person with some help from some drafters or whatever. And I built that from you know one person you know, using a room in my house to you know, uh, taking a, a small tenant space, you know, in, in my house and having about four or five people to now we're about 18 folks working on various projects. So we we do projects now, probably our prime, largest prime project is 83 million. We're working on teams of doing projects up to four or 500 million 
dollars and we're on teams that are doing projects with our university and other you know government and other projects. So we've definitely grown a lot over the years. And my um, a, a key life experience I had on a couple of my earlier firms was working on older buildings and restoring them, repairing them. And so I sort of focused, uh, I worked three years under uh, an historic preservation architect, uh, Mary Ellen, and I really thought that that was a great area to concentrate on in the D.C. area. So I sort of specialized, researched that, did a lot of work in that area. And so my firm is probably one of the few African-American firms in the country that specializes in historic preservation, probably at least five I know of in the country. So that has been a, a real spur to get work on projects that probably exceeded my grasp as a, you know, just an architecture firm, but it also got me involved with a lot of partners and a lot of, you know, firms that would recognize our work. And of course, we're doing new construction and other work along the way, but that sort of gave us that backbone, especially in the D.C. area, which has one of the largest numbers of historic districts for a city in the country, uh, New York and, and, and New Orleans, some of the places that are higher, but D.C. for a small city has one of the largest number of historic districts. So that allowed me to have a specialty in this region that that uh, sort of it's a backbone to to business, you know, um, and and seeking business on projects that we ordinarily wouldn't get looked at for. So, but we we also about ten years ago I decided that I wanted the firm to focus on sustainable design. So I went back and got my lead AP, trying to foster a sustainable design accreditation uh, for folks in my firm, which we have a number of people there, and make sure our projects do meet sustainable design. Criteria and DC has a green building law anyway. It makes you do a certain level of activity, but we like to make sure our firm does that, partially because of how it affects the communities we work in. So uh, we concentrate on community-based projects. My earlier career was doing a lot of Helio Mossner projects with CDCs in DC, working on housing and things like that. Areas where is the community were really in bad shape, restoring older houses and buildings, putting them back in the service, like the White Law Hotel, which was a which was a, a derelict, you know, crack house when we first started working on it. Now it's a fixture and apartment in the community. So it brings that part of the community back. We concentrate on schools, libraries, recreation centers, housing, um, so that the community-focused projects. Uh, so we kind of graduated from sort of working with CDCs, working on projects, to working on institutional projects for, for D.C. So we do a lot of schools, K-12 schools. We do university work. So we feel like the work we do has rippling effects in the community in terms of um, um, bolstering the, uh, the neighborhoods and bolstering the, the neighborhood development for that any particular part of the city we work in. So, so that's kind of my my goal, and I sort of hire people with that same vision and same interest. And you know, our IDIQs uh, with government agencies and and working on teams that are doing projects that have a historic component have allowed us to have to to sort of control cash flow and control uh, some of our income every year while we're looking for projects that are much more competitive that we have to compete with the, the large number of architects in D.C. So that's kind of a backbone part of our business. And so, you know, the, the government side is a key component of, of, our, um, of our strategy to move forward and do other projects that are more, that are, are probably have more personal interests uh, than some of the government projects. So that's kind of where we are now. So to our audience, um... I'm sure you're wondering at this point, given how many other podcasts I'm sure you've all listened to, how and why we have an architecture firm uh, as a part of our our podcast, as a part of what we're covering. And I want to answer that question kind of outright. 
I think as you listen to this this podcast, you'll see that there are a lot of similarities. The government procures a lot of different products and services. We tend to focus more on the IT side of the house, the technical products and services, because that's a lot of the work and a lot of the spend. Um, if you look at the government spending, a lot lives there. But there's another side to this coin. There are a lot of other services, as Tasha mentioned earlier, that the government procures. And I mean, even recently, looking at just doing some of our own homework, some of the solicitations that the government puts out for construction that include architecture are in the three and four hundred million dollar range just due to the size and complexity of these contracts. So we wanted to, to bring a different voice and a different service to the podcast and really hone in on um, the things that are similar that everyone can learn from in terms of how to diversify, as Ronnie kind of touched on as one of his key business strategies already and some of the challenges that he kind of saw and how he diversified to get make sure that there was additional revenue and a baseline in and we really want to touch on some of those things so again thanks for joining us ronnie um let's dig into really our theme for today which is kind of standing the test of time and your advice to other businesses based on your experience working in state uh local and federal contracts to to how to preserve your your resources how to grow your company how to diversify and some of the challenges that you faced along the way in in pivoting in those different growth periods as you kind of mentioned from your basement uh all the way up to yes. <laughs> to now having uh your own office two offices i won't i won't spill the beans yet but Three, actually, almost we're working on the third office. So I, I'm, I'm telling I'm telling the story too soon, but um, we'll get into that. But um, we want to really, you know, Tasha and I really want to jump into getting some of the, a better understanding of some of the things you've done over time to to really help sustain and shore up your business. Yeah. And and I'd, I'd like to pull back to something that was stated in the intro about giving your background and, and you having, you know, the tenure as a professor. I'd expect that there's been several opportunities for you to pursue other avenues to grow the business. What drove you to to start competing for uh, government contracts? Like what were some of the, uh, I guess, initial and probably still relevant challenges you faced that, you know, getting into federal um, and state government contracts? Like, well, can you touch on both of those? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. I, I know small businesses, you know, paperwork is always trouble for all small businesses. We work with small contractors that getting them to do right paperwork's always a headache, getting getting them to do what large people, you know, large firms are doing automatically. And the government, of course, is the bastion of paperwork and bureaucracy. So we tried multiple times looking at federal contracts early in my career and state contracts in Maryland. You have to know the people. So you have to get out of your seat, go out, meet the people, do they have outreaches and things. You have to to talk to them. And so that's a background activity while you're while you're doing your regular work. That's got to be going on. And uh, Amori, my wife, is probably the expert at the um, marketing side. I'm the marketing, the BD side, the business development side. So now, I, I, the reason for getting into government projects is, is as Yaz said, there are a number of projects that have my name on them. I look at them and say, it's preservation of, a, of such and such day in the neighborhood. And it'll say something, you know, that's really speaking, saying my name without saying my name. And I'll, we'll go after it. We don't even get a peep. I'm like, what happened? We didn't get, we didn't get on the short list, didn't get anything. So I said, okay, well, that's that's not going to work. Even though the project, we have the credentials and so on and so forth. And uh, so we said, we've got to go talk to the agencies ahead of time, get ahead of their 
capital improvements list, get ahead of all those things, get to know the, 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 the decided decision-making folks. So in the background, we started doing that while we're doing our other projects. But, you know, looking at the government projects, you know, a lot of folks that are not in construction or architecture, your projects might be a year or two. You might be a contract, might have different ideas. Ours are definitely going to be two, three, four-year projects to do, do major work. So, you know, getting a government contract also gives you perspective. Like if you work on a USDA campus in Maryland, there are 50 buildings there, 100 buildings there, and all of them are in bad shape. And them. So the, the idea is you work on one, they say, well, they did a good job. You know, let's, let's definitely think about them. So getting in the door is a key factor. Uh, in a lot of cases, getting in that door is working with a larger firm who has a relationship that doesn't do historic preservation. So my specialty was a way in the door. And then we just do a good job on everything. And then they, they say, well, OK, you know, we, we want to branch out to something that may not be historic preservation. We, we go after that. So in a lot of cases, getting in the door was was also going to these seminars, going to these outreach things where firms are asking for, you know, um, trades or uh, trade shows where I'm, I'm actually meeting other other entities, other architects, other even contractors that need that do design build projects that need you know someone to come in and talk about historic preservations or take care of them. This was a, a really an impetus by Amore to say like you know Ryan, you need to go to this show, go to this thing where we where where contractors and and builders are going to be. Well, why would I go to that? That's not going to my work. Well, it turns out they that's how you get that you get those design build contracts and you go to places where. An agency has some kind of yearly outreach. So you introduce yourself. So those kind of what seem like lost leaders in time when you have your day used up every day are very valuable to start establishing your credentials. In addition to right now, social media, but in the past, other you know electronic outreach to establish my credentials as a historic preservation expert. So, so we don't go ahead. I wanted to cut. So, so you, you hit on a lot of the challenges. Can you give us a little bit of what got you to pursue government contracts in the first place? Like, what was the... Well, the idea that it gave us long-term uh, capital income. If we have our IDIQ and we're, we're guaranteed, they'll say they'll, they'll do something minimal, like $1,500 is the minimum you get per year whether you get any IDIQs. But when you get an IDIQ and you may get two or three a year, you may be able to put that down as a certain amount of income per year. You can project ahead and say, we're going to get a certain amount out of that contract per year. And then we go for the re-up after three years or four years, whatever it is. So that, that way we could establish some minimum levels of income that we're looking at that's locked in per year. And so that allowed us to have more better cash flow, hire people, get get resources, increase our, our software capability, increase our equipment capability, whatever it is in the background while we're pursuing jobs that have much more competition to them. Like we see, like I said, one of the large number of architects. In the country, in this little city, uh, everybody wants to be in D.C. doing work. I don't care where you're from in the country. So we're always competing against the big boys for things. So the idea that we have an IDIQ with Maryland to do, do something, or an IDIQ with, uh, you know, with uh, the housing agency of D.C. to do, do some work, or we're on a team, a contractor is doing design build work, which means they're the lead, the contractor is the lead. And we're on their team to do to bolster their their work with any uh, architecture design services. Now you have to understand, my firm is an architecture firm, but I usually lead a team of engineers, mechanical, electric, plumbing, structural, so on and so forth. They're all on my team, not necessarily under my firm. And so when a when a contractor needs to get something done, he needs permits. He's got to go to a team like mine or similar to me to get that permit filed with DC or Maryland or Virginia. So. 
So the idea is that I'm on his team. He gets the IDIQ. He can't do the IDIQ without getting a permit. So we have to do the permit work. So so those kind of jobs that that you can count on to get a certain amount, you can you know even if you're you know conservative, you can count on a certain amount of work per year. So that sort of gave us the idea that yeah, these we have to pay attention to the Maryland, D.C., Virginia outreach efforts, and they're cyclical. They usually have a contract opening that says we're looking for. Uh, an AU or somebody to do something, and we we look at that every year and find okay, there's a couple. We we apply, get shortlisted, hopefully get named, and then you sit and wait for an IDIQ. Of course, you're priming the pump. You're going in there, you're talking to them, say, here's what we can do, so on and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that you have to put aside time to do if you have an area you think is going to be key to your firm's success. I mean, there's some IDIQs that produce work without us doing anything, but most of them require you're talking to people. What's coming up? Here's what we can do. Because those folks have day-to-day issues too, so they're not, you know, they, they may pick on somebody they they know they've used last year. You got to get in their face. So, so but the idea of producing that sort of background income to do our work, and in some cases, it, they're prime. There are some of our biggest contracts, uh, but that took time to work into. It took time to do work for entities multiple times to get uh, that work. And I guess the biggest thing to tell a young firm would be that when you apply for one of these and you don't get it, you should go up and have a what we call a postmortem. Why didn't I get it? What's my issue? What's what what did you see in there? A lot of times you find out it's very minor things, small things that that they they didn't rate your firm highly on that you can bolster your language, your images, or whatever it is. But to go up there and talk to them and have that has been very important. And typically they get 30 applications and it's tough to be the top three without ever having talked to that person. You really have to kill them with your work to do that. So the idea is that we come in and that that even that discussion that you are ending, that you're saying, hit my post, I didn't get it, helps you move up the list of that 30, you know? And it may take two tries, three tries to get that job. But that's what you have to do, I think, as to get those projects when you have that kind of competition. So. So we jumped a little bit into lessons learned. So hopefully you guys were paying attention because that (laughs) was going to come back later, but you got it early. So no worries there. So, Ronnie, I know you've got a couple IDIQs. You're working with the Smithsonian, TSA, CSOSA um, and others. So really quick, what would you say are kind of some of the advantages or, or disadvantages of working with government versus some of the commercial work? Because there's a theme already that we're kind of seeing and developing, and we've heard it before in some of our other podcasts that are some of the more even traditional government work, that diversifying your portfolio between a number of different kind of lines of customers and types of contracts helps you build, you know, your financial wherewithal to invest and be able to, you know, get additional lines of credit and things of that nature. And it also gives you kind of a perspective to be able to plan forward. But I mean, you also have the ability to do commercial work and diversify that way, where it may not be a five-year contract, but it's probably more cut and dry to your point, less paperwork. So what would you say has steered you one way versus the other in terms of going purely commercial or private? versus public? Well, I guess I don't look at the two sectors as that uh, diverse in terms of what you have to do. You know, both, if, if we get a RP request proposal across the desk that to do something, even if it's in our wheelhouse and we don't know the people, the likelihood of getting it is low because they usually got somebody in mind they got they want to do the due diligence to get three bids or whatever they're going to do. So, but it does prime us to the fact that they're doing work. And so we, we look at that. Um, but our our um, uh, attitude is that our specialty gets us in the door 
a lot of times. Historic preservation gets us in the door. And so if you have a firm that specializes in something, you have to look for angles. Now, sometimes a news story, such and such building had a fire, you know, and it, you know, so a major historic building gets damaged. So they're going to do some work on it. So do we have a contact there? Can we make a contact there? So we're, we're constantly, we have to be agile, really, to do these things. In a lot of cases, we know the firm who has the input, do the intro with the folks. Do they have a historic preservation firm on their, on their team? So we'll call that firm and say, do you need someone to take over this? In a lot of cases, our benchmarking, our getting our certifications for minority businesses or getting our certification for small businesses is very important because these firms and the agencies want to meet that due diligence. So having those certifications is very important. So uh, we started out doing, you know, um, uh, CBE for D.C. We, we did Maryland MBE for Baltimore and Maryland. We also were a small business. We got SBA for a while. That took many, many years before we got anything out of that. We kept trying to get projects. Didn't seem to make any difference. Firms would call us to say, but we never got any work out of it. And then toward the end, which I get a lot from people who've been in SBA the last couple of years, we started getting work, you know, that was based on our SBA credentials. The other benefit of that was being able to get low-cost SBA loans, which ended up allowing us to purchase a building, which is our office in Baltimore, and renovate that and make that into a mixed-use building. So, so that was a big jump for us to be able to do that uh, using SBA uh, resources. And also, they can help you defend yourself in the clinches with big firms or with the agency. They can help come in and, and talk about how, how to help you get through the paperwork and things. So, so we we really grew incrementally in that regard. Now, doing an SBA application, doing a uh, MBA, those are onerous tasks. So set it, having someone set aside and be able to do that or get or finding someone who was pre- recently in the program or in the program to help you is what we did to to do that. So the so idea you, of fill, filling out that application is, again, one of those background things you have to do to pre- protect your future in, in business. And it's interesting, a lot of the points that you brought up, because we've talked about these in a lot of our other episodes with other consultants and, and business owners about preparing and, you know, not necessarily the the differences between government or state or local, but the difference being your ability to have key differentiators that make you and your business stand out so that you can get a Mm -hmm. foot in the door and have those capabilities. But one thing that everyone has said time and time again is that these things take time. They take persistence. They take um, the ability to really hone in and stay focused on customers and opportunities and building business. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, that that topic of persistence and, and standing the, the test of time. Yeah. yeah. And, Go ahead. Tasha. And I, I just wanted to also uh, touch on that. You, you hit a good point, too. And it's something else we talked about knowing when to leverage other resources to augment and support, like you said, that heavy lift on paperwork, as well as potentially doing some of that stuff in-house where you leverage the knowledge or insight of a company that went through it themselves and and may have submitted it to reduce the time um, of the back and forth that sometimes happen with that. But with regards to the persistence, there's a lot of persistence in that. And I want to shift to the back office or less visible side of that and hit on a couple of the demographics for the architecture field. Last year, licensed architects were roughly, what, 19% female, 81% male. While females had, you know, a percentage increase by 5% since 2016, the industry still disproportionately male. And then in 2020, 
the racial breakdown was 84% white, 6% Asian, 5% Hispanic, uh, Latino, and then 2% African-American. How has your firm maintained such incredible diversity um, within this persistence? And can you also tell us a little bit more about your strategy, like for hiring a talent, the longevity um, versus hiring for projects? Well, I wanted to get back to a couple of things. One, diversity has been uh, our goal from beginnings. We, we say on our masthead, uh, diversity by design. And diversity also includes going after projects of multiple types. I learned long ago working for a firm that concentrated on downtown office buildings and developers, one sector and one sector driver, which is developers. That And they, they were a big firm, had 20-some people that grew up to about 50. And over by my time there, three or four years ago, they went down, 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 down until they finally laid me off about when they were in their 20, had like 15, 20 people left. Uh, I went to work in a firm that did the historic preservation. So it's a perfect, you know, that's where I am now because that happened. But the idea is that, you know, I saw that they put their all their eggs in this one big basket, which was going great guns. And in those days, D.C. would have these recessions, which you don't know about. Uh, six years ago, six major recessions where everybody's looking for work. OK, all the sectors are dead. So um, in, in recent times, one or two sectors would drop out. In those days, one, the whole thing would die. DC is looking at each other. Everybody's looking at each other. So, so I thought, well, you know, the way to, to do differently is not to be in one area. And so our firm has weathered, for the most part, all of these recent recessions because we are doing work in multiple sectors, of which historic preservation is also part of. We can have a, a school that is a historic element that's got to be, an office building that has a historic element. There's just a historic district so we're trying to do a new construction site, but they got to get it to historic preservation. And so we come in as a specialist to say, here's how you get that building, that modern building built in a historic district. And I've taught that class at Howard, actually. So um, so the idea is being being agile and in, in looking at, we, uh, I'll tell you a story. We had a, an article came out about D.C. doing new libraries. They haven't done new libraries in 50 years. This is in the uh, early 2000s. And when I read the article, I said, Amoy, we should go after these as four libraries. Turn out, you know, they, they were going to accept 20-some applications from four libraries and then shortlist that. So we, we found a team in, uh, I think, uh, Oregon or Washington State that was a specialist in the library. We called them and said, you want to do blah, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, okay. So they came in. We were shortlisted with them. But we were shortlisted about 12 out of 23. We said, we're going to get a project, a four project. So we also saw another firm out of North Carolina, African-American firm, that was a specialist in libraries. And we said, okay, we got to resubmit. So let's ask them. They were number two. So we asked them. They were not local. We said, well, why don't we joint venture with them and go out the firm? We ended up getting two libraries. So, so that was the sort of agility, you know, looking at all avenues of how to get work done. But part of our DNA and my wife's from Trinidad. We've been, you know, we, we look for work anywhere, anywhere. I'll teach at Howard. So I'm always getting national and international folks coming in at the, at the junior level to come in the firm. And I worked at Bowling Air Force Base, which had a multinational base. And so I learned, I thought I cut my teeth on how to communicate and how to deal with multinationals in terms of getting the work done, which is on the base did several hundred buildings, all types of issues. Uh, we had to get work done. So I'm communicating people from multiple cultures. How do you get that done? So when I, I found that there's a sort of dynamic tension that occurs when you have these multiple uh, backgrounds and, and upbringings, not just male, female, not just black, white, but you know all over. And when you bring them together, you can get some great dramatic results out of that. So I felt like that's something I wanted 
want to integrate in a firm when I left the government and went back into the private sector. So just naturally, we looked everywhere for talent. And of course, the way the world works, a lot, a lot of this has been pretty vibrant for architecture. For the big firms are cherry picking the June grads off the, the uh, major schools all the time. So and we couldn't pay them at the early days of my career. So we were looking around for people who were on the edges that didn't necessarily get noticed by those firms, which people of people color are typically there, and women. So that was a key area, a uh, key decision and a key interest. And so our firm now always has eight, nine uh, nationalities. We only have like 18 people. So so we have we are all over the place, uh, age and otherwise. So and we've tried to make that a home culturally, try to make that a home visually. So when you look at our website, you see different folks in different things. But it means spending more time communicating, spending more time making people feel welcome and and, and listening to the different cultural um, uh, aspects and bringing that to bear to the work. So, so that's part of that. The idea of working through all of that in the background, that's, again, one of the things we're doing regularly every day. And and so you got to create a situation with your clients that they recognize that we're going to bring somebody diverse to the table uh, mm-hmm. at these meetings and at these and, and any sort of technical connections we have. So a lot of agencies are used to that because the engineering firms are typically multinational things like that. So it wasn't as difficult as you might think. But our SBA and CBE and all those things have been very helpful in getting us in the door on projects, getting us noticed on projects. But the self-promotion is one of the things that I found was very valuable. I'm doing historic preservation work. We're doing some significant buildings. Nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. All right? So I started going out, producing seminars, producing um, you know, videos saying, here's how you do this. Here's how you get this through D.C. government, so on and so forth. And like, for example, what we're talking about, the issue of the paperwork. I'm going to pause you. You're getting ready to go into lessons learned again. I'm going <laughs> to pause you. Lessons learned. Lessons learned. Yep. It's opportunity. So okay, go I ahead. just talked about the fact that it's tough to get paperwork done. Well, there's really, if you've worked in a firm and you put together the uh, 8A or, or the other uh, applications, that's actually a little cottage industry that you could start to help small firms get that paperwork done. I mean, there's lots of agility that you have to you can apply to any situation to say, this, this is people who need this. How do I get my skill out there? So we promoted ourselves as historic preservation expert. And we would show up at AIA, American Institute of Architect, or NOMA, National Association of Modern Architect Conventions, and we'd put on a seminar and say, here's how you do X. Here's a here's a um, a building we did. You know, we do some kind of a example of a project that we got through certain type of things. And and so we established those kind of credentials. So we would get calls about projects regionally to do what we need to do. So I found that to be very valuable. And we decided to do that probably eight or 10 years, maybe after our firm started that we were seeing we're doing work that's competitive with everybody, but people don't know about yeah. it. So how do we how do we how do we bridge that gap? So and I can so, I mean I can imagine like you talked about how it was kind of built in from the beginning based off of your own experiences. And I heard several different strategies of how you kind of had to adjust over time to attract that talent and to get that those resources into your organization. I myself have experienced some of the things that you talked about with, you know, people not knowing who you are and, you know, making sure to put yourself out there, which, you know, can, can be a a test in itself, uh, especially if you're like me, don't like, I think some people who don't know me would be like, oh, she's an extrovert and does well in groups right, of right. that nature. But I really am more of an introvert and it, it it's like I have to mentally prepare myself 
um, to be out there. And sometimes I find myself avoiding LinkedIn because I keep seeing my posts that we've put out and I'm like, it seems so self-serving, but it is a part of kind of what you have to do for your business. Like, uh, for people to know that you exist, that you're in the space mm-hmm. and that you have certain mm-hmm. expertise and, and that strategy piece, I think it, it is important. And Yaz, you want to continue or push that, push on that piece, pull that string, as you say. That is one of my favorites. I like pulling <laughs> threads. Um, so, right. To, to that point, we talked kind of offline a little bit about a term you use, which is benchmarking. And you mentioned it a little bit already, Ronnie, before our audience, I would like to talk a little bit more on the, on the benchmarking and how you've used it throughout the, the tenure of your business to continue Mm -hmm. to propel growth, to continue to diversify and get you over these recessions and these transitions. So, um, for those that obviously weren't a part of our offline conversation, um, can you explain a little bit more about what you consider benchmarking and the value it's brought to your firm as you guys continue to grow? Yeah, I mean, that's been a, a key element, um, but it's based in my sort of lifelong learning sort of attitude toward everything. I mean, you know, you show me rock climbing. I want to know how, how do you do it? You know, you show me, you know, artwork, how, how you know, ceramics, how do you do this? You know, I'm always interested in how things work and I've always been that way. So, you know, when I get a partnership with the firm, they have practices that I think work well. We want to look at them and say, how can we incorporate them in our business? I'm not so self-centered that I go like, well, ours is the best way of doing it. We, we sort of look at what's being done by larger firms that are successful and say, here, especially ones, sometimes you can find it without working with them, but in a lot of cases, working with them, you see that the key reason why you should do it that way, whether it's certain software, talking to my peers. Like one of the biggest jumps we took was when we got out of our sort of parochial servicing groups. Like we actually got a broker for our insurance. We got we developed a relationship with the bank that was going to attend to us a little bit better. We, we got a lawyer that focused on architecture that I didn't know about until I got in the business for a few years. So, so those, my, my peers in the group, and that's what I'm saying. An old architect told me he never attended any AIA or any things like that because you can't get work out of those spaces. Yeah, but you can get information out of those spaces. So you go to a, a, a garden party at the AIA and you're talking to people and you say, well, like, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with my lawyer. And they said, well, try this guy. So, so there's lots of folks out there that you can, you can benchmark to get good ideas and good information and good uh, collaborators. But the working with firms where they have their their jobs set up a certain way, their drawings a certain way, they're using certain software, they're using certain illustrative software, their staff is set up a certain way. We can say, let's cherry pick from their operation things that might help us. And so over time, you know, we have used that in a variety of ways. Like say we're doing a, a school and a, and a person has a certain way of examining the program at the school. We say, well, let's use some of that strategy on our next school and show that as, as, as uh, use that to convince the client of our expertise. So again, vice versa, of course, I'm doing historic preservation for for their benchmarking on historic preservation activities. So you have to be careful about some of that. But the idea is that I've been pretty open about that, you know, that we're going to do that. And I won't partner with someone who's not going to let us learn from their operations. So that's the idea of partnering with people who are going to be long-term collaborators, not just quick hits where we just usually get this and that's it. So the idea is to try to develop those relationships where you can call them up and say, well, how did you do that? Develop personal relationships with the key players in that firm, ask them questions about things, creating that network of collaborators. And I find that that is probably one of the biggest epiphanies when I was a young architect that I, you know, came in, worked hard every day, you know, 10 hours, whatever, 11 hours, 
trying to make sure I didn't fall behind. I'm the only African American in the office and a uh, young guy. I'm the young whippersnapper, whatever they call him. You know, and I'm, you know, no matter how long you're in a firm, if you're the last person to hire you, the young person in the firm. So, so I'm trying to do work and, and, <laughs> Uh, they kept asking me, guys would come by, well, they're going to go out Friday and go to a bar. They're going to do this, do that. I said, no, 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 I'm finished with work. I'm going to go home and do what I want to do. Well, I'm going to hang with these guys. I'm with them 50 hours a week. So, so one one time I just said, forget it. Where are you guys going? So I finished what I was doing. I was, you know, I wanted to finish what I was doing, get ahead. And I went down there and I learned more in a half an hour hanging out with mm-hmm. them at a bar than I did in four months, five yep. months at that firm. And I said, well, what I would have missed this completely. So I said, anytime I talk to young folks, I say, look, you're missing an opportunity if you just become too parochial and say, well, I'm just going to hang out with my friends. You need to spend some time with your your work cohorts and learn what's going on in the firm. You'll learn more about who's growing up, who's coming down, who's, who's you know, doing well. And I find it be very important. So I, I sort of looked at try to with my teaching, I try to use my benchmarks and help the students avoid those pitfalls. So all throughout my career, benchmarking has been a key element in getting ahead. And so if we're going into that commonly in as architect, you can get a job with a with a sector in a sector where they give you a project where you haven't done that before, you know, haven't done that type of building before. Something new is in the building. So how are you going to do it? And what are you going to do? Obviously, you got research you can do and other things you can do. You have people in the firm who've done that before. But in a lot of cases, your peers are where you can find, well, where's how how did that get done on another job? How did that get successfully done? How did you get it through the permit phase? How did you get it through successfully, you know, uh, through you know the other phases of the project? Uh, so benchmarking us has been important and getting into other sectors. You know, they need historic preservation. They need a local architect. They come in with skills in like medical, the medical field, something which maybe we haven't done, or libraries at that time we hadn't done. We hadn't done a single library when we won those two libraries. So the idea of bringing in somebody who's done libraries, who needs a local architect, needs that, that expertise, we, we give them that skill set and we get back from them the ability to get a project we wouldn't ordinarily have gotten a, a look at for. So, so Ronnie, we talked a lot about benchmarking and how that's helped you guys continue to to grow and the line of sight and, and the ability to offer that information also to your students, your employees, so that they also have that kind of line of sight into being able to see some of the things that other firms are doing well, as well as collaborate with other firms and teams that you guys work with so that they can see some of the things you're doing well. And that's a phenomenal piece of advice. Um, let's shift to some of our smaller businesses. And this is, you know, sector independent, not just architecture or not just IT. But if you could give, you know, one piece of advice to a business um, that's reaching one of those pivotal points like you, you've you hit mm-hmm. that maybe is at five years and, and wants to see if they can make it to 10 or maybe they're at, at one and not even sure about what the next year holds for them. What's what's a piece of advice you would offer to a small business that's working in this, you know, state and federal uh, space that's that's mm-hmm. trying to grow? Mm-hmm. Well, I I think that looking at other industries, look at other other people who are doing well in that industry. What are they doing? How are they doing it? Okay, so benchmarking that can be from afar. You can look now. You know, nowadays you can go on a website and look up Acme. You know, a uh, person doing this kind of technology, and they list how how do they list their skill sets. How do they present them? How does their website look? How does their social media outreach look? A lot of firms in our industry put out cultural data so that people can see how, what would it be like to work for that firm? Here's how they act. Here's how they show them in the day, show them doing baseball, whatever they're going to do as a firm. So does that convince you to, to work with a firm? So we're, we're looking at ways to 
what's what is it what appeals to us when we see it on 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 the internet so and again i would say key element to me is diversify your market targets uh, and be agile about it so we we do something off and on like the libraries with sort of a blue sky effort how do we how do we get this project and just the whole firm sort of participants you know do this do that but and so the idea of you know looking at diverse ways to attack something or looking at opportunities you know so you may be doing one you may be one particular region doing one particular thing but what is it you see has been a problem or what do you see a business opportunity that you might be able to jump in I mean, if you're a trucking industry and you're doing something and you and you see that that there's people having have supply issues, how do I how do I help? How do I use my resource? I got trucks. How do I do that? So wh- whatever it is, so the idea is that you know being agile about it, not just saying every day I pick up these from these clients. I got to get more clients. I got to deliver my trucking. How do I fill a void with with so in architecture that could be, uh, um, for example, in soil preservation of a specialty. It can be that. I'm keeping current in my software and my and ability to produce you know wonderful renderings. People can see things, and I and I get those renderings out there on different websites. There's lots of ways to to, to diversify your target market, and then but identify where you have might have value. That's really what we we were able to do, uh, and how you're going to reach them. You know, in some cases it's direct contact, some cases it's cold calls, which is you know probably your least successful method, but it is a way to get started. And also to find people in that industry who are doing that work and try to partner with them or or who are, can tell you how to get in that industry. So I'd, I'd say think about your business a little bit more than just day-to-day doing the work. I see. So expanding that that repertoire of your skills and applying it to different areas is really how we've been successful over the years is that we see a, we see ahead a downturn coming, projected ahead by a lot of people. Okay, what's the downturn occurring? Is it occurring in housing? Is it occurring in offices? So we have to pivot early. And a lot of times, architecture and construction will do like lemmings and go right off the edge of the cliff. There's too much office space, and I've got four or five pieces downtown. I'm going to keep building my office space. And then that thing sits vacant for a year or two. So, you know, we try to look ahead and say, well, if office space is going to be a glut, let's look at other sectors. Let's look at other things. How can we get another market? So the idea is that we have to do that kind of reconnaissance and listen to the noise out there and decide is that affect, going to affect my business rather than wait for it to actually affect your business. So, mm-hmm. so I would say uh, that that kind of and I've learned that from benchmarking other firms that they they have a group that's looking ahead. Maybe I'm, I'm looking ahead a month, and then six months. And now we're looking ahead a year plus. Whereas in my early days, I was looking ahead day to day. You know what's happening tomorrow. So I'm, I I learned to change my focus, you know, with the help of other folks and look down the road. And it's helped us miss those pitfalls and get, get past them and, and grow into other sectors. So I say that's probably the biggest advice is to, is to kind of uh, pay attention to that down the road aspect rather than just, you know, you know immediate future. So. Yeah. And that's that's invaluable. That's a invaluable feedback. And what I heard is, you know, diversifying, you know, your portfolio and your outlook benchmarking by evaluating and leveraging uh, leaders according to your industry, Um, doing your research, uh, looking at, you know, companies like what is the culture? And I would even add to see if they're consistent and look at the leadership. Does the culture and what they say and sell is their environment aligned? If there's a diversity component in there, is their leadership showing the same thing because sometimes companies do pitch that piece and and there's that incongruence 
Um, and that can be a leader for some, you know, other types of behaviors and activities in the culture that you might not appreciate. And so with that, you know, you well, guys. Plus, been- I also add one area is to go back and talk to your current clients and find out what yeah, they need. Sure. That's your first step. Now, what, yeah, what, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do you need? As architects nowadays, we are purveyors of many services. People mm-hmm. say we're just going to draw the building. People say, well, I've got this problem on this site. How can you solve it? I may have to get a civil engineer to help me figure out how to do it. Or I've got this zoning issue. So we, we've got, so we, we ask them, what is their, what are their issues? And mm-hmm. we provide kind of a general, you know, construction building wide services and uh, become the client associate on a project rather than just do the architecture. So, I mean, what you're saying, you know, all of being agile, just being agile. You know, you talk to a client and you think you're doing great until, well, you know, you didn't deliver that thing on time, blah, blah, blah. And you think, well, that was only a day late. And they think that, that was a big deal. So you got to say, well, okay, let me solve that. So solving problems is one thing. But looking ahead also involves talking to your current base of clients, making sure mm-hmm. that you're meeting their needs and, their, and looking at their future. So sorry, as well. Oh, no, that's fine. Speaking of future. <laughs> Um, let's jump into projects on the horizon. What's next for RMC, R. McGee and Associates? Yeah, well, um, R. McGee and Associates, I'll get it right for you. So, uh, <laughs> I just want, so, I want it to be R. McGee and Architects because you're Architects, but it's R. McGee and Associates. People write RMA all the time. I'm like, no, it's RMC. <laughs> anyway, so, um, uh, my father always drew a small C with two dots under it and that's where I signed my name. I said, that's where it's going to be. So. Yeah, we we actually have done exactly what I just said and looked at Howard University's and, and UDC's future work. And uh, on Howard, they're doing a they did, they're doing four huge projects on the campus, actually five with the hospital. And so we research firms were going after research firms, the best chance of winning it. In some cases we were we were exclusive, in some cases we were on multiple teams because of historic preservation and our association with Howard. So we parlayed that my teaching there, being there with um, uh, knowledge of the city, so on and so forth. So some of these national firms came to us and, and asked us to be on their team. So we ended up being on two out of the four major projects, and that's the several hundred million dollar projects, which are in the middle of programming right now. So that's the future, is moving through that. In addition, we are on a number, we're still doing pursuing our K-12, through looking at schools in Maryland. We, we just, um, our team, a large team room just won a P3 project with in Prince George's County, where we're doing eight schools with the team. So we're looking at, we're doing that. So we're trying to expand our marketplace and our base. That's an office we're opening up in PG County for that. Um, so we're, we're actually looking at growing. We're always keeping our historic preservation component. We just hired a young lady that's, that's, uh, you know, very knowledgeable in historic preservation, but a great architect too in other areas. Uh, so she's helping me on that. We're looking for historic preservation specialists, uh, diverse ones. So we're still we're we're doing exactly what we're talking about. We're trying to expand that that marketplace and that sector balance. We're trying to expand into uh, healthcare field. That's probably the area. The two top earning areas in architecture are healthcare one and education two. We're in two, so we want to look after look for one. So, so the idea and for, that's our and goal. So. And for those listening in, I mean, 
as a small business, you should know, honestly, where your sector is going, where the money's going, where right. the spend is. Right. Um, this isn't, again, unique to architecture. Understanding where those opportunities lie so that you know where you should invest your time to get out and go talk to people and get out and go have those conversations is an integral part of, of growing your business. So thank you for that. And we're congratulations, number one, on, on your wins. And Godspeed on growing your business into <laughs> another state, because as we know, with federal and state work, that also comes with more paperwork. Yes, uh, yes, so yes. En- enjoy yeah. that part of our, of your growth phase. Uh, there's another thing you mentioned, and I'm going to mess this up. Your role on the D.C. Board of Architecture, Interior Design mm, and I miss- <laughs> Landscape Architecture. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, uh, I mean, did yeah. I did I get everybody? You got everybody, not necessarily in the order, but that's okay. So, yeah, that that's part of my outreach to uh, establish our credentials. So, I was on the Historic Preservation Review Board, DC Historic Preservation Review Board, for six years. So, that sort of established really my credentials again as being an expert in historic preservation. So, I was ruling over everybody else's projects for six years, and I'm also now on the DC um, Architecture. Interior Design and Landscape Architecture Board, and we sort of oversee the, the regulations that govern architects in the city. And with that, we've, we've created some outreach to get licensed, get licensed architects their, their continuing education credits and things like that. And so that's also allowed me to, to participate in bringing more programs to bring more young architects in the field. We've gone to Howard and UDC and had programs there uh, to help the students there. So the idea is that my giving back to the community involves not just physical community, but also the educational community, young young folks. So that's been really key in my career, I mean, to be, is to look at bringing people behind me in a way that I can. So not only in my firm, being a teaching firm, but also teaching at Howard and also outreach to the other universities in the region and to uh, get an idea of, of what they're up against and how to how to surmount those those uh, tasks and issues. So so, you know, we have, we, we feel like we're, we're at the really stage now. We're trying to go even further down to high school and grade school, talk to kids about architecture and really prime the pump for them to think about architecture before they get into school. And I, I feel like that's a transferable kind of concept for those listening in. We're, you know, talking about architecture, but maybe you're in cybersecurity, maybe you're in data yes, analytics. Yes engaging with your community to help educate those as well as expand your network for those that are working in the field is another great way to, one, bridge the gap with potential discomfort in having those conversations because it's a lot easier with kids uh, to be your authentic self. And so, you know, increase that level of comfort in having those conversations and doing that networking, but also do something meaningful in your community, wherever that may be, um, and whatever your skill set may be, to, that ultimately helps your business as well, but helps in a very in a, in a different way where you're also in parallel kind of working within the community. So I appreciate you bringing that up because it's not something I think we've really we really talk about much in terms of how there's a kind of a mutual business benefit to small businesses and, and re-engaging and teaching and educating those within your communities. A lot of young people out there now looking for more the job to have more meaning to them. Yeah, you know, I mean, even a job, even a job that's not as high paying as you might think, but it is affecting things they see around. Mm-hmm. Them. So, so, but I'm saying, as a small business, you do you do a big job. You, know, you do some, you know, like I said, cybersecurity. You do some building. You know, is that a benchmark opportunity to go to a seminar and say, "Here's my 
I will put in a little little. Uh, I'm putting a request to say a lot of times these these organizations are looking for people to provide data and provide output for their their seminars and symposiums. So you put in say I, we were able to surmount this particular problem on this job and here's how we did it. You put that in as a as potential um, black paper or white paper and you say and they accept it. Then you go to the seminar and you present what you did to make this work. Uh, and then your expertise starts to become documented as a person who knows how to do this field, no doozy. And again, the outreach there is dramatic because it, you know, even if they don't come to your seminar, mm-hmm. it's broadcast many, many times. And you can cite that on your website. I did blah, blah, blah. So those are the kind of things I think are the outreach efforts that don't take a lot of time. But they, uh, in fact, that sometimes they pay you to go there and enjoy two days in some other city. But the idea is that you can then establish your credentials uh, in that field if you feel like you're doing good work but not getting recognized for it. So. Yeah, and that and that takes us, I think, to a very perfectly tied bow on pinpointing that staying power and talking about how you're giving back to community. And because I honestly feel that if you have that connectivity with audiences all the way down, like you stated, going to junior folk who aren't necessarily in the career yet that are in the community, the teachers hearing about that, parents hearing about that, and the community seeing that that give back all the way up through symposiums and industry organizations and the education um, arena at the more senior levels. Mm-hmm. All those things, although they seem tertiary, feed into mm-hmm. that stay in power and you being able to have a business that can progress over time or last over mm-hmm. over over a longer timeline. And with that, we're going to go into our closeout in talking about how what we began with, all the opportunity, the revenue uh, providing that stability, the mission opportunities that you get to have access to that you probably wouldn't if you weren't a part of the government contracting space, as well as experience, building experience, all these opportunities in GovCon attract businesses, as we stated, of of all types of capabilities, as well as product offerings. And considering that complexity of doing business within the U.S. government and the, the various differences in services and products that the government purchases, what we just heard with Mr. Ronnie McGee is how you remain in the game and, and stand the test of time. And with that, we want to thank you for joining us here on Unveil GovCon Stories. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Ronnie, again, to echo what Tasha said, thank you for joining us on this episode of Unveiled. And thanks to our audience as well. Thank you all for listening in to Unveiled GovCon Stories, a Hive 39 media production with our guest, Ronnie McGee of R. McGee and Associates and your host, Tasha and Yas. Please subscribe, share our podcast, spread the word, and always reach out to us if you have any questions, thoughts, commentary, or if you're also interested in joining us on the podcast. We love to have new guests and love to have ideas for content as we are trying to develop content that's relevant to our small business audience and helps you guys move the needle and, and grow your business, grow your company and your resources as well. So thanks again for joining everyone. <music>